Welcome to The Bottom of the Glass, a podcast about the art of traditional rudimental drumming and music of all origins. The Bottom of the Glass is hosted by Dave Loyal, Brendan Mason, and me, Brian Watkinson. We'll dig deep into the theories, the ideas, and the history of rudimental drumming, fifing, and world music through the words and experiences of those who are making music history today. Recording in progress. It is? Is recording really in progress right now? You know, what was really progressive was uh, one of my favorite coffee stops ever, and that was Hoochie Mama's. You remember Hoochie Mama's in Sydney? No, I don't remember anything in Sydney, actually. And I went to Sydney <laughs> twice. Yeah, it, so it was it was right right outside of um, of St Andrews College where we were we were staying um, when we played with MCV for the Edinburgh military tattoo in 2010. And uh, there were there were a lot of kind of weird things about that <laughs> about, about that area, but it, really cool stuff. But yeah, there was that that Hoochie Mama's uh, coffee place that that we went like every morning. God, I don't remember anything. I, I had too many heaps of jugs. Did I say that right? Kinda, uh, yeah. Too many heaps of jugs, or I had heaps of jugs. I'm not talking about my breasts, by the way. I'm talking. About- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Dave and I did the Sydney uh, Edinburgh military tattoo in 2010. I think it's what we decided was the time. Yeah. Uh, with MCV. And uh, so this, uh, the interview this, that we have coming up, we have um, interviews with uh, Jim and Sarah McConaugh, and we have an interview coming up with Mike Godin. So it's pretty much an, an MCV-centric um, episode. We're really excited about it. So when you guys were uh, uh, doing this gig, was it just MCV or were there other Fife and Drum Corps and other uh, bands there? So it was a military tattoo, but the um, but we were the only fife and drum unit. I, I, there might have been some fifes in some of the other units, but you know they're they're all other military bands and uh, and some some pipe bands. Um, so we were we were re- representing you know fife and drum within that that community. But super cool. I mean, like all the guys from all the different military bands are just like you know. It, it, it's quite a hang, um, both at the, the tattoo and afterwards and at the cast bar. Um, really great time. So would you say, like you guys have traveled so much more around the world doing this stuff than I have. Would you say that this gig in Sydney, uh, like where would it where would it rank as far as importance and fun against like Edinburgh or you know, Basel or any of the other places you guys have been? I don't know, Dave. I haven't done Edinburgh. I, like I, I've heard that it was, uh, that it's, it's a, it's a madhouse, but it's like a month long and it's a lot of, it's a lot of work. Uh, Sydney was awesome because like half the shows got canceled due to rain and just whatever. And uh, so we had a lot of days off. I think we were there for 17 days mm. and we had like, you know, we had rehearsals and stuff, but there were there were a lot of days off where we could kind of go explore the area, um, you know, the beaches and the went on a wine tasting. And that's actually how that's the story that we um, our podcast is named after is one of those uh, excursions. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, let's talk about that. So 
You know, because we actually, all right, so, you know, full disclosure, we have this banter that we're doing, we've done like three times already and we've thrown it out. But we talked about that in one of those banters. So so let's talk about how the bottom of the glass became the name of this podcast, if you want to. Well, since we threw out the last banter, I would like to hear it from Dave's perspective. <laughs> <laughs> so one of one of our last days there, um, we went on a a wine tasting. So it was uh, Rob Randall, Brendan, Kara, and I, um, and then Rob and Rachel Hutton. Um, I don't think they were. I don't think she was a Hutton yet, but she is now. <laughs> and. Uh, <laughs> But so uh, the wine tasting took us to a bunch of different places in, in this uh, van driven by a French guy. There were like three British people, um, some Japanese uh, people, us, and, uh, you know, just kind of a, a random assortment of different cultures and languages and everything. And um, we got the nickname. It was, it was like Noah's Ark. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was like two of each nationality at, this point, at least. And I actually remember that the name of the winery was Iron Gate Winery um in New South Wales. How do you um, remember that? I, I remember I, I nothing from this trip. Yeah, I don't know. You probably had more than I did. <laughs> um, yeah, you were drunk, man. Yeah. I was. <laughs> no, um so um we we got the nickname the the slammers um <laughs> because one of the 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 people who owned the winery he said you know there's the sippers and the slammers and he pointed to the to the british girls and he was like you're the sippers and and you americans you're the slammers because we were just pounding back the wine <laughs> and uh, so um you should tell the rest of it brendan well, like, he, doesn't, I he doesn't even remember it. Well, no, I, I remember does. this he, part. He knows this part. I know this part because I, I, I believe, um, if I remember correctly, I was making everybody laugh in that entire establishment. Right? Right, Dave? <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, we'll, we'll, that we'll doesn't that. sound very right. Oh, I, I, Brian, I, I've had you rolling a couple of times too. Just admit it. <laughs> Okay. okay. So what that actually means is that you were laughing and I was giggling yeah. <laughs> and everybody else was annoyed. <laughs> By the way, I hate my laugh when I listen back to sometimes I, I go back to listen to these episodes. I can't stand my laugh. It's, it's pretty obnoxious. So I'm trying to make a conscious effort to not laugh as much anymore. What? Oh. <laughs> okay. Anyways, there was a, a female there, a female uh, I think she was British who may or may not have looked like my ex-wife. <laughs> so she turns to me and goes, excuse me, can you reach your tongue to the bottom of this glass? <laughs> I don't really know if that's what she said exactly. It could have been something that rhymed with glass. I don't know. I'm not really sure. <laughs> But um, I just that that's the story. That, that's it. It didn't go anywhere further than that. We just all had a good giggle. Yeah, and it became part of our uh, like <laughs> language with each other. You need to tell the bottom of the glass, and that's the stupid name of this podcast. 
See, now I remember you recounting that story with, can you reach the bottom of your glass with your tongue? And you said, no, can you? Yeah, I did say that, yeah. (laughs) I don't think you actually said that. I think you wish that you had said that. No. (laughs) Dave, do you not know me? (laughs) I don't know you. (laughs) Yeah, they wouldn't say something like that. I do have to say that uh, kangaroo steaks are actually pretty good. See, I, I know we ate that, but I don't remember that at all. This was actually my second time going to Sydney. The first time that I went to Sydney was with uh, Top Secret. And I was 20 years old. Um, and uh, I had this opportunity. I was auditioning for the cadets of Bergen County at the time. And, and there was a camp coming up. And I had a, I felt like I had a pretty good shot at making the cadets. I, I just, I, I felt like I did. Um, and then I got this call to do MCV, uh, which I ended up going. Top secret. Sorry, sorry. Top secret, which I ended up going with, with um, Mike Godin, in fact, who we're going to listen to later in this, this podcast interview. Um. And so I ended up going then and, and that like that changed my life, just the, the whole experience of, of going to Sydney and, and just being away from home for that long in a different country. Um, I think that I, I, I was able to somehow get a twenty five hundred dollar credit card and Top Secret paid for a really good amount. And, and, I, and I think we got a stipend each day, if I remember. Um, but. I still ran up that credit card bill. That was uh, not a very great experience with, with figuring out my finances, but it was certainly an experience that I'll never forget. And it really catapulted uh, me to do some way different things with, uh, with rudimental drumming. So anyway, Sydney, I don't think I would ever go. I I don't think I ever would have went if it weren't for these opportunities. And and, uh, certainly the MCV one was a great one too, because I became best friends with Dave. Yeah. Yeah. That's where, where we really hit it off. But uh, yeah, like that's the cool thing about like these international performances, like it really shrinks the world as far as music. And I mean, I think that just meeting people in these different, you know, military units and different civilians from around the world is just, it's opened up so many opportunities, you know, for all the travel that, that we've done, um, you know, both individually and together. Um, you know, I mean, it, it, it's just it shrinks the world and, and it, it everybody is so chill, so cool. You know, we've had some of those people stay at our house, you know, and we've stayed stayed with them in different different parts of the world. So it's it's really neat. And you know what, what's really cool about it? And I'm not going to divulge, you know, what it is, but Dave and I have conversations all the time with different people that are interested in learning about rudimental drumming from all over the world. And, and like, we're texting each other. Hey man, do you want to go to, you know, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, sure. Sign me up. Let's, let's try to see if that'll work out. So it's, it's, it's only getting bigger and it's pretty incredible. Um, you know, I actually just, just texted you another one of those, what, like two hours ago. (laughs) That's what made me think of that. Like, Hey, do you want to go to, you know, this place? It's like, hell yeah, I'll go anywhere. You know, as long as there's enthusiastic people there that want to learn uh, about, you know, what we do. Um, yeah, I, I think it's just, you know, it's a it's one fantastic opportunity after the next. You know, that's uh, that's uh, really cool because I mean, 
like I'm I'm late in life on this stuff and I have never done any international travel and performances. So so I've got this gig, you know, that that we're all going to, you know, in Switzerland and I'm intimidated because I've never done it, you know? I mean, I don't know how to travel with a with a big ass bass drum uh on a commercial airline. I don't know I don't know how to, you know, uh, navigate transportation in Switzerland. Have you, know? have you checked the uh, the sizes on that yet, and the size requirement for the luggage? Yeah, we yeah we have. It's going to cost a lot of money. Okay, <laughs> it's going to cost a lot of money. Like you know, I'm I'm the cheaper part of the trip. I think the drum is going to be a little bit more money than. I am. Well, so with some of your drums, though, like we used to run into the problem with the old guard where um, the the airline would say, oh, yeah, like literally the door on the plane is not big enough like hmm. for the for the cargo hold on the plane for that drum to fit through. Whoa, really? And, and you have big drums. So, like, <laughs> you know, there, yeah, there's no so, real arguing with that one. It's like, well. Well, here's so (laughs) it's going to be interesting because I I just like less than an hour ago, um, I'm I'm going to meet Scott Mitchell at the uh, Portsmouth drum shop on Saturday where they they have a drum case for the drum I'm going to take. We're going to see if it fits and then we're going to do final measurements. And it may be a little crazy when we do final measurements with the hard case. and with the airline, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, things could change. You know, I might have to bring another another drum, maybe. I don't know. I know that when I'm going over there the next couple of times anyways, um, I'm just going to keep it as as my, my check-in luggage. So I have yeah. a drum. But even the, the 17 by 21, the Patriots drums are small enough to fit in as just a, a check bag. Right. So, you know, then you just pack a couple pairs of underwear a t-shirt shorts right. i should t- take my drums apart and pack stuff inside of them yeah my dad does <laughs> you really yeah my you dad. really yeah so yeah. you like you like unravel the rope and you throw shit inside your drum i mean yeah but like you know i i i'm roping drums like every day of my life so it's not exactly like right. the biggest pain in the butt you know yeah yeah, to me that's a monumental like I that would freak me out, but I know with you, I mean when I was at your shop uh a couple of months ago with the creek and stuff and you you like, you know, pulled a drum off of a press and while you were talking to people. So, I know you can do that like in your sleep. I could never ever do that. I could never unravel a hooked 30-inch bass drum and fill it with underwear. And then pack it up again. I couldn't do it. How, uh, I'm not sure if your age is getting to you here, but how much underwear do you need for, for a week-long well, trip? I need, you know, I mean, with you assholes, I need three pair a day. There's no doubt. Well, you're not putting your underwear on our assholes. So. <laughs> All right. Well, listen, on that note, let's get to this interview with Kim and Sarah. <laughs> and then follow that by Mike. <laughs> okay. 
So we are really excited about today's chat. Now, this interview has been a long time coming. We probably should have done this interview in season one um, or maybe season two. Jim and Sarah McConaugh are two heavy hitters, and not only in the world of fife and drum, they are definitely that, but and not only in the world of Celtic music with their work with Fellswater and others, but on styles of musicality. Their range of expertise and knowledge covers a lot of ground. Now listen to this combined list of instrumentation. Collectively, Jim and Sarah play drums, acoustic bass, fife, whistle, Irish flute, high-strung guitar, piano accordion, and I'm sure a host of variations of all of those instruments. They've been running the Middlesex County Volunteers Fifes and Drums for decades, and what they've done with that core is just amazing. MCV is one of the premier fife and drum corps on earth, and they have performed all over the world. So why has it taken three seasons to get you guys on this podcast? I think I have the answer. Reconciling how your last name is spelled versus how it's pronounced has been holding us all back. Now, how you get McConaugh out of M-A-C, capital C, O-N-D-U-I-B-H, I just can't even imagine. So I'm just going to have to let that go. But here we are, and let's do it. Welcome. Thank you. I can give you a Gallic lesson if you want. (laughs) You know, that might be a part of this because I just don't get it. You know, it's interesting. I just don't get it. It Uh, has to do with diphthongs and aspirants, and you can just leave it at that. Oh, brother. Wow. Wow, that's heavy. Great to see you guys here. Um, I'm going to start off with the first question here, uh, and I'd like to just to hear about some of the early days of MCV. Um, How did it get started? Like, what what were the goals um, with the group starting? I'm going to answer that since I joined MCV before Jim. Um, I actually joined CV in 1984, so I'm not a founding member. It was started in 1982 by a a host of characters that really something different. They they came out of the Concord Minutemen around the time of um, the Bicentennial, and uh, the roots of it were really wanting to play fifes and drums really well. And part of the issue was um, they watched the um, the First Michigan come across the bridge looking pretty darn good. Oh, yeah, in 1976. In 1976, and thought, hmm, maybe we can do better. And um, they, they just started banding together, Sharuna Curran, Dave Niles, Stephen Taskovics, who was still with us in the core, and he's one of the founding members. And they really wanted to, to push the envelope with what you could do with these instruments. And, and that idea persisted, and they, uh, they got together and figured out what they wanted to do, and they had their first real gig in 1982. And they wore brown gingham. Where they actually were asked to play the anthem at the National Muster for whatever reason was in Raynham, Massachusetts in 1982. And that's why we codified the date of formation. That was the first time they were recognized as uh, Middlesex County Volunteers. Um, the, the founders had been picking up people, uh, kids, 
from uh, various Minuteman cores around the area who were getting frustrated, and uh, and they started scoring gigs around downtown Boston and historic sites, and they would ask the guys to come on in and do something. So it became Middlesex Volunteers, and uh, so it got a little more organized after a couple of years. It was really about seventy-eight or seventy-nine, but eighty-two was when. They had that first date at the National Muster, and that's where they decided that they would, you know, hold the founding date. It's kind of interesting to, to hear some of those different uh, different parts of it because I've heard um, snippets of of the the early days just from being around MCV, and of course, uh, um, you know, Brendan and I both both played with with MCV, um, and I'm very proud proud of that of that time. We had a great time with you guys. Um, but so you had some some relationship with the National Guard at, at at some point as well in that area. Was that around that same time period, or was that a little later? It was later. Uh, the original director left in a huff, and the second director left in a minute and a huff. And Sharon O'Curran took over. He was working as a, um, a, a computer guy. He was working in IT for the National Guard. And some bright, bright-eyed guy had the idea that he wanted to have a ceremonial guard um, for the Massachusetts National Guard. So he wanted a horse platoon, he wanted an infantry platoon, he needed fifes and drums. Well, they couldn't get anybody to play fifes and drums. And Sharoon said, you know what, I have a fife and drum corps, let's talk. And um, so in 1985... They started a relationship that lasted until 89 um, with the National Guard. MCV formed their Fife and Drum Corps. And we had lots of very interesting gigs, including a couple of summers where we actually mounted a guard at the Massachusetts State House, had a parade through the common and the public garden um, every Sunday. And we got thinking about, the members got thinking about what would it be like to, since we are now really a regimental fife and drum corps. So we had all this time on our hands and a reason to play it. So uh, Scott Mitchell, Peter Sullivan, you know these names, um, Sarah was there, Catherine Crawford, um, other folks that uh, are well known around the activity. Anyway, um, so we had to do this every Sunday for 10 weeks and we got paid. And we transferred that into a scholarship program where everyone who was um, matriculating would get five, six hundred bucks if they agreed to this schedule. So we did, and that's how we built up um, these all these musicians. And we were visible because we're downtown there at, at Boston Common every week, and folks would come around and say, hey, this is interesting. And we'd uh, just hook them and bring them in. So that's how that happened. And the, the next part is probably going to be why are our uniforms so formal. So Dave, with all due respect, because we were playing with the National Guard, they were allowed to utilize um, decommissioned uniforms from the Honor Guards, including the Colonials. So we ended up wearing the late or early 1980s polyester old guard uniforms old guard castoffs up, up here in uh, in Massachusetts and uh, the one quick story i think about this today is in 1987 we had to go on down there to Fort Meade and play the anniversary of the constitution being ratified 
And since we were there with the National Guard, we had to show up against the old guard wearing their uniforms. <laughs> didn't sit well with the membership. So I spent, and my sister and Stephen Taskovics, figuring out a way that we could alter the uniform just a little bit so that we wouldn't look like a cookie cutter, like we ever would. And uh, so we adjusted that. Then Mitchell and I were working at the same store together for a couple of years. And we're sitting there one afternoon, and we said, this has to stop. <laughs> and so we did research during the dark time of the day. No one was coming in the store and figured out what uh, a Massachusetts Redsman of Ice and Drums would have worn. And that's where the white coats came from. That's, that's a pretty incredible story. I don't remember hearing that. And I actually, I have to say something because uh, n neither one of them um, extended this uh, this greeting to you, but happy 31st anniversary to both of you. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Thank you for spending it with us. So really, really do appreciate that. Um, yes, the anniversary for me and Jim, not MCV. It's MCV. Oh, yes, yes, yes. 40th. Yeah. This is MCV's 40th year. That's right. That's right. And you guys have uh, an alumni thing happening sometime in November, I believe, right? We do indeed. I'm hoping I might be able to make it up there. But I, I actually have a couple of questions. I you know, Jim, I know um, your background is, is was DCI, I think 27th Lancers. You were taught by Charlie Poole. Correct. Right? Yep. And But Sarah, what, where, where did you come from? Where, 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 where did you start? You know, obviously, Fife and Drum Corps is 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 was not your first uh, first thing. Um, so where where did you start playing? It's it's really funny. I grew up in Western Massachusetts, and um, I was playing saxophone and piano and all sorts of stuff. I was a real band geek. I went away with some relatives for the summer on the Cape. One, this is why no, I was in junior high school. I was bored to tears. And uh, because I had no instruments to play, and we went in some little gift shop, and I bought one of the standard plastic six-hole fifes, and I had a little fingering chart. It's like, oh, this is kind of cool. I can play Yankee Doodle, and that other one. So I taught myself how to play the fife, and then I had my fife in my saxophone case in high school, and was just noodling around with it. And somebody said, hey, you should join the the um, I can't remember the name of it. It doesn't Ham exist. Hampshire Rebels. Hampshire Rebels. Rebels. Um, out in Western Massachusetts, I don't think they exist anymore. And I went to a, a couple of rehearsals, and they wanted to dress me in a mob cap and a skirt. I'm like, and mm, <laughs> not so much. Um, so I didn't do much with them, but I kept the fife. And when I went, I went to college. Then I went to, I joined the Air Force. I went to officer training school, and I still had that silly fife with me. And I brought the fife to officer training school in, in Texas in the summer, and you're not allowed to have anything in your room that's not in the room regulations. And so I had to stick my fife up in the ceiling panels, and I was on the top floor in Texas in the summer, and it melted. So that was the end of that. <laughs> but then when I, when I got out of officer training school and I got stationed at Hanscom, Hanscom Air Force Base. I was in the BX shortly after I arrived in Hanscom. And there's somebody wearing a jacket for a fife and drum corps. And I said, hey, how do I join that? And they said, are you good? And I, I lied. And I said, yeah. And they said, you don't want to join this one. You want to join this new group. And so oh. I called this guy. And that was 
Jeff Baker, Jeff Baker. Jeff Baker. And I, it, so I called that guy, Jeff Baker, and I went to see MCB and they handed me a McDonough fife, which I'd never played. And I'm like, no, oh, it's this. And uh, they said, well, play us something. And I played a couple of notes and it's like, this feels funny. I said, <clears throat> I got to go. So I left, came back a week later to rehearsal, having figured out how to make a sound out of a McDonough fife. And <laughs> that was that. So was that 84 you mentioned? Is that the year you started? 1984. Yeah. So, and that was two years after the core kind of officially had its launch. Yeah. So it yeah. was small, very small. Yeah. So that's fascinating. So, so you had never made a sound out of a McDonough and said, hey, I got to go, but I'll be back. Embarrass myself and go right. figure it out on my own and come back a week later to rehearsal and I was right. going to say, that, that's probably the first story that I've ever heard where somebody, it was a success story of buying a plastic fife in a gift shop and then <laughs> actually went on to play fife. I had never heard anything like that before. That is a really unique story. That's cool. <laughs> so, um, you know, and, and this is actually for, this is actually for both of you guys. Uh, MCV is... Uh, an elite core. I mean, <clears throat> you guys are, are very good at what you do. And um, I think you're recognized as being an elite core. I certainly recognize you as being an elite core. Now that requires commitment. It requires practice. It requires time. It requires a lot of work. As you look back and you remember when you were preparing for some of your really big gigs, wherever they were in the world, what was your most aggressive rehearsal schedule, if you can recall? I'll say there's two of them. Um, one aggressive schedule was preparing for the first Edinburgh tattoo mm -hmm. in 2007 for us. And then another project before that wasn't a performance project, it was a recording project. When we recorded our Christmas record, we learned and recorded a record, a full length record in less than a year. Mm. Um, and this is, that is a long record. And it was really an exciting project. Um, we were rehearsing twice a week at that time. And Jim Clark and John Chalia did all the arrangements for that. And I used to wake up at 4.30 in the morning and there'd be yet another arrangement from Chalia overnight. Hey, here's another one, here's another one, here's another one. And so we divided it into thirds and we learned a third, recorded a third, put it away. Learned a third, recorded a third, put it away. Learned a third, recorded a third and put it away. All from January to by October, by the beginning of, end of September, beginning of October, we were listening to the recording roughs, selecting the final tracks. And that was a really hard press. So not only is that probably my favorite MCV CD, it's in my rotation for top five Christmas albums to put on every single year. And I'm not alone. Did you know that it was going to be that big when you were doing it? No. And that whole inspiration was um, a couple of different things. We used to go down to Colonial Williamsburg every Christmas for their grand illumination. It would be our... Um, sort of our season finale, you know, Lance Pettigo and Tim Sutphin and John Moon really made us welcome down there. And so the, the junior corps, the senior corps and MCB would hold down the three stages for the grand illumination. And we would always learn like one simple little Christmas thing. And then somebody in the audience said, why don't you play more Christmas music? And we just got encouraged to do 
a Christmas project. And John Moon was a real mentor uh, and guiding light for us, for MCV in general and for me and, and Jim in particular. And John used to say things like, wouldn't it be nice if, fill in the blank, and that meant you are hereby charged to try this thing. <laughs> One year, it was, wouldn't it be nice if a fife and drum corps was to play Handel's fireworks suite for grand illumination before the fireworks? <laughs> so we had to do that. We did. Yeah, you had to do that. You were charged with it at that point. We it was it. just so, something you had to do. Yeah. And, and so... Um, that was kind of the birth of the Christmas record, too. And another thing that John Moon had always told us was, don't ever do a fife and drum record without at least one track having some sort of other instrumentation. So we had a lot of fun with that on the Christmas record. Jim, you know that? I was going to say that the, um, the other inspiration for that Christmas record is we had been doing work with this early music group here in Boston called the Boston Camerata. And um, they did a... Uh, a beautiful recording of early American songs and tunes, and they wanted source music from fife and drum, and they contacted us to do it, and uh, they wanted to replicate the concerts off of the off of the album, so that that got the ball rolling with them. But they did a series of Christmas concerts that we ended up being part of. But their um, their particular Christmas record inspired us. And Sierra and I said, we want a, a Christmas record that you can put back in the day when you had the, the five-disc chamber. chamber changer. Changer. Um, nice. Um, for the CDs, if you could put it in and hit shuffle, and it would come on and it would be jarring. You know, it wouldn't be like somebody playing fifes and drums at the Bedford Liberty Pole. It would just meld right in. Yeah, this is kind of an epoch. Those were the two reasons. It was uh, the availability of a Christmas audience and the inspiration from an early music group that continues to this day. So coming back to your yeah. question, those were the two instances that ah. the, the heaviest duty, you know, sort of practice. One right. was CD and the other was Edinburgh 2007 when we knew we needed to grow the group. We couldn't yeah. go out there and look about that big. Uh, we needed to bring in more players right. and the group. And we were rehearsing across eight time zones. Yeah. So, uh, so let me follow up on that. Just, to, I'm, I'm sorry, Dave, I know you wanted to ask a question. We keep, oh, you're good. You're good. Uh, but when, so as you have, have you, I'm trying to figure out the best way to ask this. Have you gone through periods of uh, being a little bit scared about your, uh, lack of level of recruitment, or have you always been pretty fortunate about getting people into the core to play? <laughs> you want to go first? Oh boy! <laughs> um, I we lie awake at night, mm. staring holes in the ceiling. But then, for whatever reason, and um, I don't know how to say this without sounding really smarmy, but. Fifers and drummers just seem to drop out of the sky. Just when you're not getting any sleep, the phone will ring. Hi, my name is Heather Jordan. I used to play flute in the band. And I was, I That's now Heather Taskovics. <laughs> right. Or, you know, hi, my name is Karen Goddard. And I used to play flute in the band. Or, hey, man, I've been watching guys for years. And I want to come play. It will just happen just when you're literally hmm. tearing your hair out. 
Casey, well, go ahead. We, well, we, we were always frustrated in the active recruiting program. And so it just felt like, what are we going to do now? We had one guy, Mike Cahill, who you know, who would <laughs> go to a bar and come back with like three drummers and two of whom would stick. Right. Mm, wow. <laughs> Single-handedly gold medal recruiter. And, and, I, and I was just thinking about that, um, you know, as I watched you at Bunker Hill at the beginning of the parade and, and looking through and seeing so many faces that I haven't seen before and so many members that have come through the Junior Fife and Drum Corps ranks. It's, it's definitely a testament to the product that you guys have been able to, to have. And it's, it's, a, it's a draw. You know, people want to be an MCV. And, you know, and that, that's kind of related to my to my next question. Um, I, I, I do have to say that I was actually at the um, one of the Grand Illumination concerts. I think it was right after you released the um, the Christmas album. And so I, I got to see you. It was still fresh for you guys. So you performed a lot of the, the, the pieces from that album. And it was it's it was a highlight for me. And um, every Thanksgiving, Kara is very particular about listening to any Christmas music before Thanksgiving. Um, so after when we're on our way home from from seeing family for friends, uh, Thanksgiving dinner, we always put on the MCV album. That's that's our go to to start the Christmas season for us. You can hear it live. We're doing a Christmas concert in, in December. Yeah. That's where? Awesome. Where? Up, up in Boston? Up at Cary Hall in Lexington. Excellent. Wonderful. December 11th. That. That sounds amazing. It, it was a, it was a highlight for me. So that that would be very cool um, to come up and see it. Hopefully, we can make it work. Um, so my question is kind of related to what to what Brendan was saying about um, you know Brendan mentioned um, some of the the junior core people who aspire to be an MCV, and I'm curious about some of the people that 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 have a different background. Um, so. This is this is going to be a question for both of you, but but I'd almost like to, since you are on the d different sides of the fence as far as the fife and drum, I'd like to ask you each individually um, <clears throat> if you can talk about uh, your personal approach and maybe um, the MCV approach, if that differs from your approach, and bringing other um, this, I guess, for you, Jim. I'll, I'll say I'll say drummers. Um, drummers from drum from from DCI from drum core from different styles. Um, do you approach it as kind of a rip the bandaid off, um, or is it a more gradual transition into okay, this is a seven stroke roll. It breathes. We 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 delay it. It 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 has its own breath to it. Um, and what have you learned about that transition over the years? <laughs> it's it's a long slow climb and it often is um uh, less successful than than we would like um because the genres are so different the skill set is the same the basics but the application is so different uh dave you and i and brandon we all play a version of a molar you're more sturst though brandon but um, we all teach bands, we all teach drum corps, and, and the way that you're taught on that modern drum, it's more of a percussion ensemble, and you're making a particular sound that is part of that giant ensemble, as opposed to just two things in fife and drums, which is that big snare drum and a big-ass bass drum. So where you are two versions of the same piece of music, you know, the, the, there's no higher level than a bass drum or a snare drum, you're just equal, right? And the, the hardest thing is to try and uh, 
to me, and it's frustrating, and we've all been through it, is to teach the, uh, the ergonomics of actually wearing a drum on your body and having a head size that's three or four inches larger than anything you've ever played, um, and then learning how to get that air column moving. Maybe you're playing a calf head, maybe you're playing a specialized synthetic head. How are your arms and hands and shoulders going to work? The hardest part is to unlock those wrists and those forearms, I watch them all warm up, and get them to play almost like karate. You play through the instrument. We've all been taught that you don't stop at the head. The um, philosophy of it is the hardest part. You know, and uh, sometimes you succeed, sometimes you don't, but you gotta keep, gotta keep pushing. So that, that would be it. It's the ergonomics and understanding what that drum is. And if they open up a little bit, then you take them back to the to the players that the old guys who taught us, old guys now, and what they were basing their thing on, whether it was mold, whether it was sturts, whether it was stone. That approach to things is what you're trying to get into them. And I don't know, my success level was, wasn't as good as Drea's and probably not as good as Brandon's, but... That's what you're trying to do. It's a different animal, and you got to want to learn what that's about and take the journey. I do actually believe that it is a more ergonomic style than than a lot of the other, um, than playing flat or something like that, you know, just the way that the drum drapes. So, like, do you have a, um, do people, I mean, obviously, they see the light. They stick with the group. They become, you know, developed um, within the fife and drum scene. Um, like, so, you know, do you think that it, that it's pretty successful that, that that transition all in all? All in all, there there's um there's arcs. You get one one section that will really buy into it. They have a lot of uh, old style players there. It's it's uh, osmosis, and um, if if you don't, then they tend to stay in their comfort zone, and uh, and uh, play that way. So you try to adapt uh, whatever's necessary to get them to play as a section and to play the music the way that it's been written, which is also very different than anything they played before. Um, then you just you just kind of balance everything out. because you want, you want a nice presentation, you want the guys to have fun, you want them to come to rehearsal every week, and um, come to the events, you know, instead of twice a year, come every weekend, and uh, give them a good, uh, good place to go audience to see. I always tell them, I'll, I'll put you, I'll take you places you've never been, and put you in front of audiences you've never imagined. Just put in the time and come on and we'll play. And you just, you balance it out. Yeah, yeah. That's very, that's very interesting. And it's, it, it's interesting you brought up uh, Andrea. We had her on this podcast last year and I'm so glad we did. Um, I mean, I think it's still one of our favorite uh chats we've we've had you know she was just so so candid and funny and warm and uh you know and just a great drummer but so speaking of andrea you know when we were at bunker hill you know a little over a, a week ago and i think it was just after you and i were chatting jim yep. scott mitchell had a very interesting observation <clears throat> and it was about the mcb drum line and he said that <clears throat> you are obviously a very strong drummer with your own style, 
Michael Godin is also a very strong drummer, <clears throat> excuse me, with his own style. But Andrea had a way of getting in between you two and pulling you together and bridging you two together and making it all work. You know, is that true? Um, absolutely, absolutely true. Um, I spent almost, uh, almost 30 years uh, playing next to Drea. There was one uh, star-crossed season where Michael decided that some of the new guys coming in would benefit from playing in between the, you know, more traditional guys like me and him and Drea. So he broke us up. And we let him know after every event, every rehearsal, how unhappy we were with that decision. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> Godin being Godin, God love you, Michael, um, just held fast, which is why he's the drum chef. And at the end of, uh, end of the season, when we got back to rehearsals, the line was miraculously rearranged, and there was Drea next to me again, and off we went. Mm. And uh, But I've I played with a lot of fantastic people, and uh, been very lucky to mix things up, and, and including Dave and Brendan. Um, but uh, there's a, there's there's nobody that I can play this style the way that I played with Drea. Mm. I do have a fun story though. When she came out to the first MCV rehearsal, she had just come out of Michigan, and she was a timpanist. So. Well, I got a pen. I don't have a drumstick. So she shows up, and her right hand, Brandon Dave, is like this. So I was the drum sergeant at that particular point. I said, one at a time, you want to rotate that over, you know, so you can get that stroke. And she goes, why? <laughs> I, was talking, I told that story to Bill Whitney the other day, and he said, did you tell her it's because it's not a timpani? I said, you know, it was a really good answer. I wish I'd thought of that. But yeah, but she looked at me. <laughs> <and> said, <"Wow." laughs> so it wasn't always hearts and roses. but Right. Yeah, she really knew how to stand her ground, <laughs> no matter oh, what. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> I have another Drea story, but it's a visual. I'll have to wait until I see you guys in person. <laughs> okay. there, were, there were lots of um, she kept me on the straight and narrow according to the music and because she was left handed she could reach across from her music stand to mine and tap the measure that I was screwing up the offending measure The offending. Measure. <laughs> and then when it came by the next time she would do it again <laughs> since I wasn't learning we, we had our snits but um, I love her dearly, and I miss her every day. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, us too. Me too. Absolutely. Well, Sarah, would you like to talk about the um, the transition to Fife? Uh, we kind of started talking about, about the drums before. Um, so, you know, ins and outs of, of bringing... The Fifers, we understand. We understand how a Fifer wants to be an MCV and they can transition, but the, but the other side of, of the house, somebody coming from, from a different instrument. We have a lot of people coming from different instruments. It's funny, you know, we just, Jim told the story of 
just wait, fifers will drop from the sky like manna from heaven. And just in the last month, we had three just drop out of nowhere. Wow. And three lovely people um, that are going to be awesome players. One's already in the line. Um, but a lot of them come from flute. We've had people from clarinet, from saxophone, from guitar. Um, they're, they're coming into a, the, the fife line has a pretty identifiable sound. We have a real style of how we play and that, that evolved over, over the decades, influenced by, you know, from the start, Jeff Baker, Catherine Crawford, then uh, Carrie Cunningham, who's now out west, and Jane Waugh, huge influence. Um, then we were instructed early on by John Benoit, and then Jane Law and I played in Fife in the Fast Lane with John Benoit and John Chalia. So that was what I called my college of Chalia and Benoit, uh, where I was playing for two hours a day just to try and memorize all the music for Fife in the Fast Lane. You know, I tell the story about driving down to rehearsals with, um, with Jane, down to Benoit's house, and I would—I drove a Jetta at the time. I'd be going down Route 89, driving with my knees, practicing to try and memorize the inside voices, which there are no repeats. Chalia does no repeats. It's all, you know, everything's different. And I'd be pulling into the left lane and passing people while I'm playing my fife, and they'd look at me like, what? But anyway, um, so those, and Skip, we had Skip Healy instructing us for a while. So all of these things melded together to form a very distinctive sound that we have today. So anybody joining into the Fife line has a really strong identity they're joining. And then when somebody drops out of the sky and says, right. oh, I want to play the Fife, we, we have them work with one of us, like um, Lacey Saskin or me or Steven or, or Heather or others, to just get to the point where they can play the instrument in tune and in our style, in a, in a way that's going to make it useful and productive for them to come to rehearsal. Um, but, you know, we, we push them along and we'll tend to throw them into the line before they're quite ready so they can figure out how to march before they have to try and do all of it at once. And it's just really fun. Do you promote this uh, distracted driver thing to your uh, Fife <laughs> line? Or uh, do you well, tell them not to... The cat steer with their knees. Now. Do as I say, not as I do. <laughs> Jeez, <laughs> holy crap! <laughs> now I was young. I was in. You know, is this the early nineties? <laughs> right, right. I get everything in the early nineties. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and you just mentioned Sarah. I mean, the different iterations of of MCV's sound over the years. Um, obviously, that the drum riding has changed so much. Uh, you know, between, uh, you know, now it's a little bit more Mike Godin. Jim, I know you've written a few things and, and uh, you know, Jim, Jim Clark and going back to Scott Mitchell. Uh, but it always seems to kind of center around John Chalia in, in the in the Fife world. How much influence does he have on your approach on the Fife or is it more just how um, how the arrangements are, which which kind of molds the way that you you approach teaching the Fife? Approach teaching, I mean, the, the way that I, our sound is really influenced by both Benoit and Chalia. Benoit's done a bunch of arrangements for us, too. And we have other arrangers. Andrea did an arrangement for yeah. us, um, Guardian Angels. Um, I've done a bunch. Um, Chris Myers has started doing. We have other people. But we really enjoy the way that 
um, Chalia uses the full range of the five, you know, three and four voices. It makes it really interesting. It's a lot of fun. Um, as far as style of teaching, regardless of what the music is, the style of teaching, the way that I teach is very much influenced by um, the way that I learned from Chalia and Benoit in Fife in the Fast Lane. Maybe not quite so, they were pretty hard ass, but, uh, you know, but what to teach and how to think about how to shape the notes, very much influenced by them. Yeah. You know, it's funny when we were, when we were uh, interviewing Chalia, he had a, he had a very interesting um, comparison between Skip Healy and John Benoit, for example. <clears throat> and he said, you know, if I was going to go play with John Chalia, uh, no, with John Benoit, I would practice all day because I'll be damned if I was going to let that guy be better than me when we went out to play. But then when he would go play with Skip Healy, it was more like, let's throw out a hat, have a couple beers and play some tunes. And that's that's that was the difference between those guys with with Chalia. And it's and it's fascinating, you know, because they're all great. They're all phenomenal. But they they just have different attitudes about it. You know, they just really do. Yeah. Uh, Skip is very seat of the pants. Yeah. And just wild. Yeah. And just having a blast. Yeah, let's go have fun, you know? Yeah. Benoit is much more precision, repeatability, and um, you better get it right and it better darn well be in tune. Yeah, that's yeah, for sure. For sure. That's actually something that I remember from that from that Christmas concert. I got to um, I was in the Fife and Drum building, the, the Williamsburg Fife and Drum building, and saw you rehearsing for it. And I remember that you turned around at one point and before before a tune started and you told my code and you said i want this at exactly 92 beats a minute and turn back around <laughs> 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 i remember that to this day <laughs> that's awesome i love that <laughs> um, I, I do have an anecdote um uh -oh. i'm just going to talk about uh, what we're doing later on in the in the interview that we're going to we've had a long uh relationship with the Boston Pops Orchestra and we played for many years with them on the 4th of July and they actually did a piece of Christmas music with us a few years ago and there was something going on that Sarah had the FIFO, a small section of the FIFO happen. It was there. the Patriot. It was the Patriot from the that John Williams score, score to the, the Mel movie. Gibson movie, a terrible movie, beautiful score and um, there was a uh, piccolo part in there that the piccolos were having trouble with and they thought that it would be cool to have mcd player and so in we came and um so sarah's playing along and the orchestra comes in and she i was at this rehearsal she actually no i did not i did not <laughs> cut the orchestra did not cut you the orchestra put your hand no up. no let me tell the story i'll get it right <laughs> oh thanks yeah no we <laughs> The piccolos were just fine. Um, this was the first time that they wanted us to come in and play that frosting part. Um, it's probably the hardest thing that the Fife line has had to learn, and quickly, and it's in an E, and uh, and it's really fast. And you have to have it memorized, because you're not going to go up there on the hat shell wearing 18th century stuff and have big black music stands in front of you. What are you going to do with that? So... We had to learn this thing and learn it fast, and we were playing endlessly along with 
um, a recording that we had, and that recording was at 86. And so we were executing it very precisely at 86. And so the first time that we went to symphony to rehearse it with the orchestra, we, we played through it, and it was horrendously slow. And we're like, oh, my God, oh, my God. And Keith turned to me and said, well, how was that? All good? That was great. And I said, it was very slow. He said, I was trying to be kind. I said, please don't be kind. <laughs> he said, what should, what should the tempo be? I said, 86. And he looked at the back of the orchestra and he said, 86. Does somebody have a metronome? And I said, yeah, it's right here. And I, I just snapped 86 for me. And I didn't even think about what I was doing. It's like oh, <laughs> giving, 96, giving 86 to Keith Lockhart. It's like, okay. And he said, well, okay, let's take it again at Sarah's 86. Here we go. Sarah says it's too slow. We <laughs> <laughs> looked right at the orchestra, then turned Sarah. So the oh, but that's when he said, "I love the look of terror in the piccolo players' faces," which, of course, they weren't being terrified. <laughs> They're awesome players, but that was really fun. But yeah, we we think a lot about tempo. Do you have a Do you have a metronome in your head? Um, some people do. Some people have a natural metronome in their head. I don't. Uh, do you have it or do you guys need to rehearse or practice with a, with a metronome a lot? We use the metronome. Um, we always try and agree, uh, what's the tempo that we feel this piece is best represented at? And then we rehearse it there so that it becomes muscle memory at that. You know, that, that doesn't mean that if we're in the parade and things are really exciting, there's a big crowd right. and everything, that the drummers don't push up the tempo. Right. Drummers. It's always the drummers, man. It's always drummers. the drummers. Um, but, you know. Jim's like, I've heard this before. I've heard this a thousand times. Well, I feel a little outnumbered here, okay? <laughs> yeah, true. That's true. fair. Fair. <laughs> you don't scare me. Um, but I think we do, um, the leaders, at least uh, the folks who've been in MCV for a long time, really do have a, a, a metronome that's just sort of built in. Basically. So how do you how do you feel about, Sarah, how do you feel about the um, the stretch of the Cenosurf role? Do you hate it? Yes. Or, yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Now, oh, that's an interesting question. Why? What stretch, David? Do you mean do you mean where you delay it and then cram the whole thing in? So I actually have a story a story about what what stretch. So when we were in Australia together, um, we were we were hanging out at the cast bar for you know a week with everybody else. Have been people have been asking. Um, Brendan and I were hanging out, and they were they were asking us about like you know like oh there's the stretch in the music and, and all that stuff. And we we had been explaining it to people all week. And uh, Paul Lasardi was with us one night, and uh, somebody was like, oh yeah, that that stretch that you were talking about in the semester crawl, like oh I could really hear it. And Paul just jumps out and he says, he's like, what? We don't stretch the seven-stroke roll? Yeah. And, and the, the following day, in, in I think it was either a performance or a rehearsal, um, right after we stopped playing, you just hear Paul yell, holy shit, we do stretch it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, I that's miss beautiful. Paul. I really miss Paul. Oh, that's beautiful. So that, that stretched him. <laughs> <laughs> That's hilarious. That's so good. So um, 
this may, you may not have an answer for this. This is for both of you also. But so what is the future for MCV? What is the future for you two inside of that core or not? And if not, what comes after that? The future of MCV, it's a good question. I mean, we have a set of aspirations that are sort of written down that are what we all, what holds us all together. And it's excellence in music and presentation. That's what the core was formed to do. And that obviously continues to be something we're looking for. We want to be uh, sort of a, a New England icon present and sought after at big events that we should be at. The third thing is we want to be international ambassadors of our art form. COVID has made that a little difficult lately, but we hope to get back to that at some point. Um, we want to be a self-sustaining 21st century organization. So what does that mean? We actually have put some money into an investment. We've established an endowment. We want to um, maybe buy a building at some point. We're still working at my old company, and Stephen Taskovic's works there too. And they're they're they've been hosting us for 20 years now. That it might not be so at some point. We want to make sure that we are being as supportive of people and diversity and individuals' needs, make it an environment that people want to be in. And then the last thing is we want to continue to advance the genre that we love so much of fifes and drums, pushing the envelope with the instruments and preserving our music through recordings and scores and stuff, teaching the next generation and educating audiences. So that remains consistent. But what form that takes year to year or decade to decade can, can change depending on opportunities that come our way. You know, we, we went through the Christmas phase where it was all about Christmas record and Christmas concerts. And then we went through a tattoo phase where we did how many tattoos in how many years? Oh, we went Edinburgh, um, Nova Scotia, um, it was, that's Halifax, Sweden, um, Australia, Basel, Australia, Australia, Edinburgh, Halifax. Again. I mean, it, it was an incredible stretch. I think everybody in the fife and drum world was like looking from the outside and being like, what the hell are they doing? That is nuts. We kind of ask ourselves too. Yeah. Um, and, but so recently it's been more, let's stay home, regroup, deal with COVID, um, make, make videos. Um, so right now it's our 40th. We're trying to really just celebrate that we're going to put out a, a music book it's going to be it's called 40 tunes for 40 years 40 for 40 because it's our 40th anniversary so Lacey Sazgan Jay Healy company are putting that out for us um so the, the group is going to continue to push the envelope um like we're going to do the Christmas concert we're we've got some sort of strategic things that we're doing this year to to make sure that we're ready to be, you know, for another 40 years um, while we're waiting to, for COVID to, to, to die down. So MCV is going to continue to move out and we hope to get back to Halifax. We hope to take a East Coast tour. If we can't go abroad, maybe we'll come down, you know, down to Washington to do something fun down there. Um, but we have to find ways to keep reaching audiences and keep our own people um, satisfied. 
thankfully we're doing this big thing with the Boston Pops on the 4th of July this year. We are doing a, they just wrote an arrangement for Fife and Drums and Orchestra using some of our tunes where we're playing our stuff and it's orchestrated over it. It's really cool. Mm. So oh, cool. That's cool. That sounds really cool. One of, one of the problems that we're having as, we're, as the fifers and drummers fall out of the sky is a lot of them are um, grew up watching, like Brendan was saying, that, that, uh, a crazy run of all those tattoos and everything. And it's just not going to happen any longer. And uh, so we're now the retention problem and interest presents itself. And what are we going to do? Yeah, what sexy uh, so things when, are we When's doing? the next time we're going to go? Well, I uh, um, we don't think it'll be for a while. So when when the pop all of a sudden dropped out of the sky again, we keep using that metaphor, but it really is what happens around here, especially with the pops. They're notorious for calling us up like on June fourteenth and saying, "Are you there on the fourth of July?" Oof! This has honestly happened. Wow, the pressure's uh, on at that point, right? Uh, yes, yeah. yeah, sure, fine. We're gonna play. So, so this, you're definitely this, not going to be able to hang those seven rolls then. Listen back and know that the conductor is about a beat and a half ahead. And, beat and a half ahead, yeah. You just got to follow his feet. <laughs> the backhand halfway in the audience because we're ahead of the conductor. Right. He's I mean, behind us. Yeah, the conductor's and, behind us. So you got yeah. the guy out in the middle of the crowd. Down in front. Hello. But you asked about our future with MCB. Yes. Jim and I have been running this group since, you know, for like 300 years. <laughs> and um, it's, it's time for new leadership. Yeah. So. Do you, do you really feel that way? Yes. Yeah. Yes, we do. It's do, time for the next generation to step uh, up. Do you, uh, and you don't have to, <clears throat> you don't have to answer this because you may not, <clears throat> you may not have this answer or you may not want to give the sense of you, but do you see people falling into that next leadership role at this point? I, would, I wouldn't say falling. I think that we're shoving pretty hard. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. That's funny. Yeah. So um, I tried to leave my positions. I actually gave up being manager and gave up being fife sergeant back in twenty. 12 or 13 and both jobs landed back on me because both people quit the organization. Mm. Um, but anyway, it, yeah. So I'm the director now and I will not be running again in January. So gotcha. that the leadership will transition off of the McConnips for the first time since the mid eighties. Yeah. Wow. What will you do? You go on a vacation? Lie on the couch and eat hot dogs. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's awesome! Wow. Well, this has been a you, you heard it here, folks. Yes, we are indeed. I did thirty-five years, and um, we we worked really hard over those thirty-five years to take the organization and just be a bunch of really pissed-off young kids who wanted to do something different and couldn't figure out a way to get it done. And coming from the complexities of of DCI drum corps. I was on staff for years after I stopped playing and um, then ran away and joined the circus and missed playing the drum. I really did run away and join the circus. And then <laughs> came back and found MCV and... Uh, USO tour. And I figured yeah. out I had a way to, um, <laughs> to help them 
get going. So we did that. Um, yeah. Established a, a real foundation with proper bylaws and uh, organizational transition and all five hundred one c three. Yeah, yeah, all that, that stuff. Whatever, whatever's coming up for the next guy. You know, we got the binder. Here you go. Right, ready, to, ready to go. Well, you know, you've. Uh, I mean, no one can deny that you have done a fabulous job with the core. I mean, there. I mean, it's great. It's a great core, and it's not easy. It's not easy to shepherd a core through thirty-five years of that level of performance and excellence and recruitment. I mean, all this stuff, you know, in fundraising and everything there is about a core that's really hard to do. And you guys did it. So, um, and you made the binder, like you say, so you can just hand over the binder. Yeah. It, so. it, it's really inspirational what, what you guys have done. I'm sure that it's, it's a daunting thing for anybody even considering um, taking it on, but you know, there, there's something kind of exciting about that as well. Um, how things change when, when new, and I mean, change is inevitable. It's, 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 it's going to change, but that's exciting as well. And it's, it's been such an inspiration to, to, you know, the fife and drum community. I mean, at least for, for me and from everybody that I talk to, uh, to see where you guys have taken it. So I'm, I'm excited to see what, what happens in the future with the, with the, next, the next, it's, next stage. We have a whole influx of younger people, with energy and ideas. I love hearing the ideas. We had an executive committee meeting. Um, what's this? Is this Tuesday? Mm. Yeah. Uh, last night. <laughs> executive committee <laughs> meeting last night. And we have some younger people on the XCOM. And just hearing new ideas and new ways of thinking of things. I'm like, yep. Yep, this is, this is a good right. time. It's not like we're working towards, we don't have to, I don't have to take 75 people to Edinburgh next year for a month. This is a good time to make right. a transition. Right. Wow. Awesome. Well, listen, thanks for spending some time with us tonight. This has been a great, great discussion. Um, and we learned a lot. And I won't speak for these guys, but I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you so, so much, much for asking us. And I'm yeah. so good to see you guys the other day at Charlestown. Um, I want to talk. I've been telling some folks about the way that we've been all off the grid for the last three years and how yeah. we miss each other. And this is a very small community and it's so um, intertwined. And um, so when I was down uh, watching the Gatsby Parade for the first time in my life, which I, I recommend someday, just find a reason not to march and watch it. It's a great pageant. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you don't have to do that. It's done since you were eight. <laughs> and uh, to see how the drum corps all came out after not being able to do it for three years, instead of like a flag, a fife, and a drum, you had good-sized drum corps from people I wasn't expecting. And then the next morning, when we all found ourselves tripping over each other in that restaurant in Charlestown, and then I saw that there were six of you guys up from Rhode Island and Connecticut that you never do that parade. And here you are in my hometown, literally. And I went, man, this is community. And mm. we just hung around, talked, and played, and waited for them to figure things out for two hours. And I, I was realizing that that's really what this is, you know, mm -hmm. about, about our um, fraternity and sorority and community, whatever you want to call it. It is. It, was, it is. It really struck me when you all showed up on Sunday. Yeah, that, that was special. And I, I enjoyed the opportunity to speak with people that I hadn't seen for a while before, like you say, Jim, while they were trying to figure it all out. And yeah. 
And they did a pretty good job of it. I mean, I think they kicked off the parade pretty well, but it was it was special. And it's that's what makes this fife and drum stuff, you know, family and something I would like uh, I, I left it for 20 years. And I'm so glad I got back to it because it's everything in my life now. You know, it's uh, I mean, I you know, my life wouldn't be the same if I hadn't come back to it. So and it's all that stuff. So, yeah, that's pretty cool. And I I appreciate what you're saying for sure. So a beautiful weekend. Lucky. Yeah. 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 Everything about it. Hey, thanks guys. This was fun. Happy anniversary. Happy anniversary. Thanks. Thanks you guys. Thank Thank you very much. We'll see you soon. Take care. You betcha. Davey, we'll talk. Love you guys so much. Love you too, too, man. The United States Army Old Guard Fife and Drum Corps is announcing auditions for fife, snare drum, and bugle. Pre-screening materials for the fife audition are due September 1st, 
with a trip to Waterford and Fairfield muster as the required pieces. Live auditions for Fife will be held on October 27th and October 28th. Audition materials, music, and more information are available on the Old Guard's Facebook page. The snare drum pre-screen is due August 4th, with live auditions on September 29th and 30th, while the pre-screen for Bugle is due on August 18th, with live auditions on October 13th and 14th. For more information on any of these vacancies in the Fife and Drum Corps, visit the Old Guard's website at oldguard.mdw.army.mil and click on the Fife and Drum Corps tab. Good luck.
Michael Godin, Michael Godin, how do you introduce Michael Godin? Michael Godin is an unusually talented drummer. Michael Godin has played with the Boston Crusaders. Michael Godin has led the drumline for the Middlesex County Volunteers as a writer, a teacher, and a performer. Michael Godin has played in tattoos all over the world. And we're not talking crapshoots, folks. We're talking about some of the most prestigious tattoos and performances ever. Let's be clear, Michael Godin is a serious drummer. But Michael Godin has an unserious side to him. For example, it's fun to sit under an easy up at a muster with Michael Godin. It's fun to share a drink with Michael Godin. It's fun to have a bite to eat with Michael Godin. And apparently, I cannot separate his first name from his last name, Michael Godin. <laughs> Michael Godin, glad you're here. Thanks, Brian. <laughs> that was really creative, Brian. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. How many gummies did you have before that one? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I can't worry about that. the eating part. Why is it fun to eat with me? But that, let's not go there. <laughs> exactly. It's like there's but there's a whole bunch of that that we probably shouldn't go into. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> hey, so uh, actually, so we I know obviously about your experience with Boston Crusaders and and MCV, but I don't know much about. Michael Godin before that, you know, how you started with drumming, how you started um, in this crazy activity that takes up our lives. <laughs> yeah, weirdly enough, I, I started my musical journey playing violin. Um, my mom got me into that and gave me uh, a bit of a nudge uh, to go and do it. And, and actually in my school system in Massachusetts at the time, um, they had the strings players start a year earlier than anybody else. So whether you're playing trumpet or saxophone or drums or, or any type of band instrument, the strings started in third grade. I'm not really sure because I was, I don't know, 10 earlier than that. Um, but I did that for three years and then Proposition Two and a Half, which was a, a tax proposition in Massachusetts, was enacted. The, uh, the strings teacher in our school system went out on maternity leave, and uh, I think our laws were, uh, were a little bit less, uh, less favorable to that back in the day, and the strings program just got cut. So the natural progression from strings was to drums, right? I mean, that's exactly how this goes. Um, it wasn't. Um, I just fell into drums, and I started uh, drums in sixth grade, played concert band, did kind of what most people uh, do through grade school, started concert band. Uh, they had a little bit of a marching element to it, st strictly with parades. In eighth grade, I got recruited to do the high school marching band, so I was going over after school and doing high school marching band with them. Did that for five years, uh, did marching band. I was fortunate enough that I had um, a couple of uh, a really good instructors, all of which were drum and bugle corps drummers. So one of them was Dave Vose, one of them was Paul Pitts. Um, 
and uh, Frank Drelli. So all of those guys did drum and bugle corps, but one of them in particular, Paul Pitts used to drag us over to his car and he had this fancy cassette deck in his car, um, aging myself. Uh, but he used to play the Blue Devils for us and um, all kinds of drum corps stuff and you used to listen to it and go, wow, I didn't even know that was possible. And so he lent us a couple of VCR tapes and me and, and one of my buddies said, we got to do this. Let's go check it out. So we wandered into a Boston Crusader open house uh, one year. Um, and guess what? Here I am. Did Boston Crusaders for four years. Um, and they were they were a bit tight on drummers. Uh, chances are if I was trying out for the Boston Crusaders coming out of high school, uh, I might not have made the triangle line because they're incredibly prolific uh, now. But back in the day, the entry requirements were were a little little softer. Huh. So uh, you said something interesting just a minute ago, where it was it was a natural uh, transition from strings to drums, and I'm I'm interested in that because my experience I went from brass I went from uh, you know uh, tuba and trombone to drums. So how how is the strings to drums transition even closer? I, I thought he was being sarcastic. I, I totally oh, was. Was he? Oh, you were? Oh, I thought you were being it, serious. It didn't make sense at all. I damn it. Your 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 intro, Brian, was all about his sense of humor and stuff like that, and then, <laughs> and then you you missed it. Uh, I missed it. Wow, I took it too seriously, man. <laughs> but it, it's fun to eat food with me, though. That that's what's important. <laughs> oh, okay. I mean, okay. So this is me backing out of the room. Yeah. <laughs> if you gave me a violin right now, I'd be pretty useless. <laughs> I might be able to play Mary Had a Little Lamb, that, but that's about as far as I'd get. <laughs> you know, it, it's uh, funny that, that you had mentioned, uh, you know, like um, going to somebody's car where they wanted wanted to, to kind of share share some other aspect of music that you might not have known about. Because I, I have a similar experience with, uh, with the old guard, um, um, you know, Edwin Santana after one of these fife and drum things, he's like, Hey, have you ever heard this? And he, he, he had me over there and, and, you know, it opened my, my eyes to, to something else. I, I bet that experience happens quite a bit with, with people, you know, but, uh, anyway, I, I want to, want to ask, um, before we kind of dive in too deep with, with some of this other stuff, um, can you tell us about some of the performances that you guys did over the 4th of July weekend? Sure. We, we did this, uh, low key, uh, performance with the Boston Pops at the Hat Shell on the 4th of July, um, which is pretty fantastic. Um, it, I'm trying to remember the, the first time that, that we did that. It was, I think, 1993. Uh, I'm, I'm trying to remember because it was the year that Jurassic Park uh, came out because I remember John Williams uh, conducting Jurassic Park up there. And uh, I was pinching myself at the at the time, going, "Wow, I never really realized playing drum and bugle corps, and then get falling out in from drum and bugle corps into fife and drum corps." Which, when I was doing drum and bugle corps, I I really didn't know much about fife and drum corps, and I and I just started on the periphery. And sorry, I'm digressing. I'll I'll get back to the Fourth of July stuff, but. Um, 
I, I, I remember I was, I think I was marching a parade either in Rhode Island or in, in Connecticut. It could have been the Bristol Rhode Island parade. Uh, but, uh, I remember finishing with the Crusaders. We we marched a parade, and we were hanging out, and we were eating stuff off the food truck, a peanut butter and jelly or, or something like that, and just watching the parade coming in, uh, waiting for the buses to leave, etc. Um, and here comes this fife and drum corps. And I, I just remember what struck me the most was the bass sound because uh, it was so thumpy because the... Drum and bugle corps uh, drums are typically pitched way higher. Even even the big drum is pitched higher than a, a fife and drum bass drum. And it was just such a thump. It was like a chest beating, you know, gorilla ape man thump. Like wow, I just want to listen to this all day long. And it it sunk in, and I didn't say I got to do that. Um, but then I, I saw it a couple more times, and then, then I got uh, I got kind of got the uh, you know the lasso when I was aging out from my buddy late buddy Mike Cahill, who said you need to come check this out, and I said okay. I didn't ask much about it. I went down to one rehearsal, and then 30 years later, I'm still doing that same band, uh, fife and drum. Um, but back to the Fourth of July. Um, we, uh, we, we played that, that first, that, that first gig and then we developed a relationship with the, with the pops, which I, I think locationally for the Middlesex County volunteers, we're very fortunate that we're located in Boston and because fife and drum tends to be very concentrated in Connecticut, it's all over the Eastern seaboard, but, um, primarily in Connecticut, but there's only, you know, what, maybe a half dozen fife and drum bands that are in Massachusetts. Um, so, and, and then on top of that, we also did a pretty good job, I think, choosing uniforms, uh, which make us look very patriotic, very iconic, very George Washington. So that combined with being reasonably good, uh, kind of catches people's eye. Um, and it's nice for, for them to have an accomplished band come up and compliment the symphony, especially for the hat shell when you're trying to do a patriotic presentation. Nice. Cool. So um, you had just mentioned uh, drum and bugle versus fife and drum. Would you consider drum and bugle a close cousin to fife and drum or a distant cousin? It depends on what instrument you're talking about. If it's drums, it's a close cousin, definitely. Uh, we, we actually get a lot of our drummers coming out of drum and bugle corps. Uh, which is nice because with MCV, we don't have a um, kind of a teaching program, a formal teaching program. If folks come to us and they don't have walk-in-the-door skills, it's we, we're not very well equipped to get them the skill set they need to, to grow into being able to play complex parts at a high level. Um, so definitely a, co a close cousin. I, I definitely want to ask a little bit more about that. It's a, a question I posted to Sarah and Jim, actually, um, in our interviews with them. But I'd like to hear your perspective. Uh, can you talk about the path um, and challenges of bringing drummers to MCV from non-fife and drum backgrounds? It's like, Do you have a method 
that you use? Um, do you have kind of a kind of a program that that you're using to to bring a DCI drummer into the style, into the 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 music? I'd say probably the the toughest part, um, or the, the the toughest entry point for a drum and bugle chord drummer is the sheer volume of notes. Um, because they're very, very used to a 10 to 12 minute show and playing that for 10 to 12 to 14 hours a day for weeks on end and perfecting it and then coming into uh, a band like MCV where we're playing 30, 40, 50 minutes worth of music in our repertoire and then trying to digest that, play it at a high level and being able to keep that dusted um, and be able to just wow, we haven't rehearsed this in two months, but they just called it on the street and be able to play it at a high level. That's that's probably the most difficult thing. You know, it, aside from the technique perspective, it's just overcoming the transition from a, we, we have this much music, and even senior cores that you see out there, senior drum and bugle cores, they have a very, very small set of tunes they ju- that they just keep repeating, and which is perfectly fine because when you're marching down the street in a parade, People see you for you know maybe a, a three minute three four minute clip coming down the street and going. They don't know that you just played that that tune just around the block. So that's a that's a fine format. But if you're doing concerts and and other types of stuff, plus when you have musicians that are in the band that are chomping at the bit to chew through a, a lot of music and a lot of tunes, uh, that format is difficult to retain those types of people. So that, that's actually the biggest, the biggest challenge, I think, for, for, for the accomplished drummers. And then, you know, for the accomplished drummers that come in to, to go from a drum and bugle chorus style uh, over to a fife and drum chorus style, probably there's, I'd say there's two things. One, one is the off meter rolls, right? They're used to playing fives, nines, thirteens, and seventeens. And when they start playing the sevens, the elevens, the uh, the nineteen stroke rolls, like nineteen, what the heck is that, right? Um, that is a big transition, and it take takes some time to getting used to. Um, but the other big thing is starting to play with arm because most of them come in, they're doing all wrist, which is actually a good thing because that's harder, I think, than playing with arm. Um, but that that takes a little while to start getting that smooth um, and and stop just playing tickety tick down down onto the drum. And and so in, answering your question though, we don't really have a, a program. It's a little bit of individual coaching. It's relying on their ability to as because they've been line drummers, so we're relying on them to be line drummers and not just match the sound, but match the style and match the approach, match the arm movement. Um, so it takes a little little while, and, and sometimes we'll be playing in a line. We'll say, well, let, let's let's semicircle it up so we can actually see each other. And occasion, occasionally we'll stop and talk technique a little bit, but that's part of the challenge of having, having limited rehearsal in a fife and drum band compared to drum and bugle corps. It's very difficult to fit in the basics and have a basics program. Here's how we hold the stick. Here's how we do our strokes etc et a, a lot of that is more organic yeah you mentioned uh cahill earlier and and, and um you know I, I obviously you know he's he's very very uh sadly missed um 
But what was some of the things that he taught you coming from Boston Crusaders to, to MCV? I mean, you, you had experience with him prior to that, but, but he was just a, a wealth of knowledge. He was hilarious. He, he, his humor was just unbelievable. So, so what, you know, what's maybe if it's just the story, you know, something that you took from, from your friendship with Michael. It was really fun to eat food with with Mike. Let me tell you that. <laughs> Sorry, I'm going to get some mileage out of that, Brian. It's good. <laughs> good, good. Go for it, man. Do it. <laughs> um, you know, like I, it, I'm, I'm probably going to come up goose egg trying to find like this perfect anecdote, you know, and I'll remember it later, maybe, in, in, when we're talking about something. Um, but, you know, Mike Mike had a, a wealth of experience, to your point, um, and he was a, he was a band director um, for, for much of his life and much of his career, and then he switched over to insurance. He also kind of got the butt end of the stick during a, um, hey, we need to cut the budget effort, and the easiest thing to cut is the arts. So, guess what? We're cutting the arts, and, and Mike got the uh, the butt end of that, so he transitioned into insurance. But that that experience of him um, being a marching band director, he always had some wise little tidbit to add. And it was especially useful um, because when you're running a drum line, you don't have a monopoly on seeing or hearing or knowing everything you're you're standing in the line and you're trying to drive a rehearsal you're trying to drive the culture you're you're trying to clean up some parts create a style um and every rep you're trying to listen to stuff and it's very very difficult to hear everything so you're relying on the other people in the line to do that for you but also to make some insightful observations and he was always particularly good at the insightful and inspiring observations um really really miss him um but he he um one thing to his to his cred he he hung it up after 20 years he went out big went out after the first time that we did the edinburgh military tattoo in 2007 he said, if I'm going to go out, I'm going to go out at the top of a crescendo. Uh, and he did that and went and did some other things. Um, but good stuff. Really miss him. Yeah, cool. So, no, that's 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 awesome. Um, so we were talking a, a little bit earlier about, you know, the different uh, levels of of drum corps and what's required. And one of the things we talked about was that, you know, kind of being in a world-class fife and drum corps is really hard. It's really hard to do that. And when we were talking with uh, Jim and Sarah recently, um, we asked, we asked them like, what kind of commitment does it require? Like, what does it require for practice and time and work. And as you look back on your time preparing for some of the most memorable performances you've done, whether they were tattoos or they were concerts or they were performances wherever in the world, uh, what was the most aggressive rehearsal schedule that you can remember having to do? I think um, for for years and years, um, and this is you know MCV since I've been it has kind of gone through phases, and and we had a phase where we were um, really driving 
um, CD creation. So we would choose a music project. We would go out, um, excuse me, clearing a reminder from my screen. Uh, we would go out, source a ton of music, get it composed, get it all arranged, write the parts, learn the parts, uh, and we would then lay that down and, and create C CDs. When we were doing this, the, and, and then we transitioned into a tattoo era, where it's more performance-based and less create a sound recording project. Um, but during that CD era, that's when I think we rehearsed the hardest. We were doing twice-a-week rehearsals, uh, people coming from all of creation to a central location and, and practicing every Sunday, every Tuesday. And that, that's a, a huge commitment, especially for, with people that have families and kids and, and jobs and houses and everything that we all have, a million bills and all, and all of that. Um, that. That was kind of the hardest in, in terms of a sustained uh, rehearsal regimen. Um, and of course, whenever we knew we were going to go into the rec recording studio, we always amped it up and added extra rehearsals just to make sure we were ultra, ultra polished. Um, but then when we do tattoos, uh, you know, Dave and Brendan uh, have been invited performers uh, in, in at least one tattoo, uh, probably both of you, what, the Sydney one in two, Sydney. 2010, right? And, and Basel 12 for me. Right, yeah, you did Basel too, Dave. Um, so for those uh, recognizing that it's it's difficult to get everybody there because whenever we do tattoos, we have to build up the band and do the invited guests um, because we even even if we had everybody that is full time in the band and all those people aren't always able to make the commitment, um, we always need to add headcount because we usually try to get. 20 fifers, sometimes 24 fifers. When we went to Sydney, we had 30 fifers. Uh, and then pretty much for every every tattoo, maybe save one of them, uh, we try to go for uh, eight snares, four bass. Um, when we did Isala, we did six snares, five bass, and that was just the core. I don't, I don't think we built out uh, the drum line at all. Um, and then one of the tattoos, we did seven, seven and four. Uh, but regardless, to do those performances uh, or to do the rehearsals, uh, we had to invite people from all over the country. So we could really only practically have three big, what we call camp weekends. So we would, we would line those weekends up. We would ask the external performers that weren't in Massachusetts, weren't full time, uh, please make at least two of the three, really try to make all three. Um, so we would do immersive full weekend uh, perform, um, rehearsals uh, to make sure that we got ready for it. And then that didn't ever get us fully ready. Like we, that, that got us to the point where, okay, the matter is there, but we really, once we hit the ground, once we get to the tattoo, every moment that we could, we would have to uh, have a rehearsal to, to sharpen the knife. And, so, and then it wasn't ever until we got on the ground at the tattoo that we actually had full attendance with everybody there. Right. So at that point, like after all that immersion, uh, you still didn't feel like you were completely ready. So then when you got on site, it was... Uh, it was fine tuning or was it really digging in? Because I know like, you know, with Grand Republic, that's that's kind of what we do. We try and prepare as best we can 
for getting to where we're going to be. And then when we get to where we're going to be, um, we will uh, fine tune stuff. Uh, and if we and if we haven't fine tuned it enough, we'll make adjustments. You know what I mean? Is that how you guys approach those bigger events? Um, I, I would say there was plenty of digging in when we hit the ground. <laughs> we, yeah, yeah, yeah. We, yeah. We weren't like off off the boat ready uh, to to be able to to jump in and perform if we didn't have those pre-performance rehearsals when we were actually at the performance venue on site uh it probably wouldn't have gone that well we wouldn't have been happy uh with it and in for a lot of factors there's only so much you can accomplish in three immersive weekends and then you go away for a month and everybody does their own thing and then then comes back because as soon as you are driving away from the from the rehearsal right things start dulling that's just human nature um but it, it's also just knowing that especially when you're adding people um from outside of the fold the, the core group um those people aren't used to the style they're not used to the uniform playing in in, in different uniforms definitely adds a uh, a different flavor to it playing on a different drum the way uh, MCV tunes their drums is not the way Grand Republic tunes. It's not the way the Patriots tune. It's not the way the Old Guard tunes. Um, so, so all of that combines to uncertainty, um, and to really get that confidence level up with all those extra variables in play, but just even the unfamiliarity with the notes, the playing styles, how we're matching roles, because uh, certainly the way the way MCV plays plays our our notes is more drum and bugle core style where we're very literal with where the placement is and then you listen to uh, to other fife and drums play and there's for lack of a better word cheating but it's a, it's a stylistic thing and if you're doing it together it's kind of cool um, but that's a little tougher to do but if you're playing that that style a little off the beat starting the rolls a little early a little late um, and then you come to MCV and we're on the nose, that takes some adjustment to play. You know, so um, I, I, I'd actually uh, asked ask that um, to, um, to Sarah, Sarah specifically, I said, how do you, how do you feel about um, the, de the delayed seven? And she hates it. Right? I mean, she was pretty clear about that. <laughs> um, you know, but it, it, it reminds me, and I, I, th I think that this um, we had talked about this in, in one of our banter's for this um, for this episode. But it was one of the ones that one of the many that got cut um, <laughs> about. Um, well, for, first off, at, at a military tattoo, it's interesting that I think MCV is one of one of the few groups that that can go and represent this um this style in the correct way because most of the of the other bands not all but most of them are military bands and most of them their national military band what they do is go to different tattoos performing the same show over and over and over again so so they're not going into the they're not hitting the ground and then you know trying to refine the show for the first time like like we were in sydney um, so I, I think it, it, it puts a little bit more pressure on a civilian group to do that, that type of thing, not being military and, you know, et cetera. But, um, but yeah, I, I remember Paul Lasardi in, in Sydney. Um, we, we had a lot of great stories with Paul. Um, 
<laughs> but Brendan and I had 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 several conversations with people at the cast bar from the different military bands. Um, them asking us why we delay the seven stroke rolls. Like, like why, why are your rolls like delayed? Somebody was asking that like for several nights in a row. And, uh, so somebody asked it again when Paul was there and he's like, we don't delay the seven stroke rolls. Get, get the hell out of here. You know, like, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and then, uh, during a rehearsal the following day when we were getting ready for the show, um, just out of the blue after one of the runs, one of the reps, he just yells, holy shit, we do delay that. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, just good times with that whole thing. But, but you know, I, I'm curious what your thoughts, what, what the Mike Godin um, thoughts on, on that are um, on, on the delay. I think you kind of already explained it a little bit where it's stylistic. But um, do you think that it's an important part of the style or, or do you think that, that it's kind of um, – you know, it, it could it could go either way. I mean, if if you're a purist, you could probably easily get distracted by it. And and you know, there's purists in in every aspect of our life. People that just want a certain certain way uh, of things versus people that have an open mind and are, are willing to to entertain different ideas. And who who am I to say that? that's played wrong, right? Well, if you choose to play it, it's artistic expression. It's not wrong. As long as you can present it in a, in a way that kind of, uh, kind of captures your emotions and is enjoyable. Um, sure. Rock, rock on with it. Personally, I, I would have a hard time adapting to that because I'm so ingrained in trying. Um, we don't always do it successfully, but, uh, we do try to play everything, right on the beat um and and certainly I, I could sit here and probably spout out a bunch of instances where i know we are mcd is challenged at being able to execute things textbook you know 10 stroke rolls do we really play 10 stroke rolls exactly or do we elongate the roll and then spank those last two notes a little closer to each other than they should be probably um you know in, in when we're playing six eight seven stroke rolls you know when you're doing a pickup is it always six one or are we starting on five and a half i you know so we, we probably cheat a little bit but we really do strive to 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 hit that but um when when i hear people uh elongating or, or playing you know cheating a little bit um i just go with it as long as it's well executed and and sounds good that that's you do you hey, we were talking about uh sydney earlier and how that was you know i i at least i remember it being sort of a challenge bringing all those those different uh guys together but it also reminded me of our experience together with top secret in sydney and how challenging that was, uh, because we had people from all over the place and we were yeah. learning all the stuff from, from a video. And I don't think I've, I've really talked about it that much on this podcast, but, but maybe you can kind of, uh, t talk about that a little bit. <laughs> yeah, that, I, I think, um, that was a whole experience. We could probably burn, burn a podcast talking, talking about that. Um, because we, we had to learn remotely on a video and so we had a bunch of americans trying to figure out the stick tosses and how they're doing this that and the other thing and and we had some rehearsals um but we went over there um not very 
highly prepared. I mean, we're, we're about as prepared as we reasonably could be without actually having the contact time with the, the dudes that were doing it. Um, I guess personally what threw me the most is when we get over there, there was no discussion on, hey, how are we going to stand within the line? And all of a sudden, Eric decides, uh, put that short guy in the middle and, and we'll we'll angle everything up. And all of a sudden, he, he starts asking me to do all the tapping. And wow, that was wicked awkward because I'm sitting here with all the Swiss guys going, I don't feel comfortable doing this. This isn't my band, but all right, I can. I know how to do it. Um, uh, so, so that was interesting, but Eric also, uh, Eric Juilliard also decided to, uh, kind of do a boy, girl, boy, girl type thing. So we did American Swiss, American Swiss. Um, and, uh, that, that also presented its own challenges, you know, cause you, you could have sliced and diced it in a, a number of different ways. And I'm, I'm not going to critique, but I, I have, I had two Swiss guys, uh, on, on either side of me, uh, and with, very different approaches to, to playing drums, and we're we're not playing fife and drum style. We're playing more drum and bugle core style. Uh, so we're pl- we're playing on flatheads, Kevlar drums. We're playing fives, nines, seventeens, thirteens. So you know, back back to drum core. So little little throwback, and and then we're doing show drumming on top of that, which I don't think any, anybody any of us were really comfortable with with sticks leaving the hands every three seconds um it was more juggling the drumming in, in some phrases uh but it, it was a it was a barrel of fun um i i i'm, I'm really grateful uh for the opportunity we met um or we made friends with with uh those that edition of top secret a lot of really strong uh, friendships with those Swiss guys that were in it at the time, um, and then even for the Americans that went over, we came from all over different bands, Patriots and Old Guard and MCV, uh, and then we had one guard from uh, the Norwegian uh, band as well, and and that was a lot of fun, especially when he decided to go head to head with the sergeant major of one of the of the pipe bands, and just like wow, uh, yeah. So a lot, lot, lot of side fun stories uh, on that, but the the drumming experience was uh, was pretty intense because we we had to learn uh, put it together probably faster than MCV has ever done anything, and and I I'd have a hard time finding in my life uh, a, a time when we had to throw something that complex together as quickly and with limited prep as we did. And we did it. And if I remember correctly, we, we did that. Um, we had a lot of rehearsals up at your house. Maybe it wasn't a lot. It just felt like a lot, but we learned everything. What I thought we were, we were pretty good. We were pretty solid with it. And then we went over there. It seemed like everything that we did was completely backwards <laughs> to what they wanted. So we had to relearn everything again. Cause I actually remember us being pretty prepared for what we thought was being prepared, and it was certainly not. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I did a million stick toss things over my bed because you, you try to figure out your rehearsal technique. Like, geez, I've never really uh, had a chance to say I need to develop a prowess in tossing my sticks and catching them consistently. So you, you're you're doing stick tosses, and you very quickly realize that picking them up uh, off the floor 
constantly is a lot of work. So let me practice over my bed. So, okay, this is better, right? I don't have to bend over as much, uh, but I broke a bunch of things in my bedroom along the way. Um, but I, <laughs> the, the, end, the, the end is I, I didn't drop that many sticks when we, when we did the show, but I d- did drop some. You, you remember we, well, there's, there's two quick stories we got to talk about uh, because uh, Eric Juilliard brought this up to me a few months ago when I saw him. He remembers that time that you and I missed the bus because we were drinking after and we ended up at the, <laughs> it wasn't the cast party. It was like the VIP party. And we oh, were yeah. hanging out with uh, Australians woman of the year. Um, and we were hanging out with some politicians and, and eating the, the, the shrimp cocktail and drinking champagne. And there comes Eric. <laughs> He's so completely pissed off at us. Oh, yeah. <laughs> we, we were representing it. How we were representing, I think we had a different interp than Eric did, but yeah. yeah. Some story, one of my, one of my favorite stick-tossing stories was um, we, in, in one part of the show, there was, there was two Vs, um, and the, the show was, or, or the, the trick was to do a couple, couple individual hand, hand tosses, and then huck your stick across to your partner across the other side of the V. Well, I had the misfortune of being at the end of the V, so I had to throw it and catch it the farthest um, in my V. But I also had the misfortune that Eric Juilliard was my partner. And it's not that Eric was my partner that was the problem. The problem is Eric was a performer and the guy running rehearsal. So every time we were rehearsing it, I was just mocking my my throws, so I was getting a little little nervous about my ability and confidence to to be able to catch the stick. So I went up to him. I said, "Eric, we need some reps. Me and you doing this." So we're 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 standing in some building by by the stadium, by the football stadium. And uh, Eric's throwing me sticks, and I'm catching, and I'm throwing back. And pretty soon, you know, some of the knuckleheads, the bass drummers, start feeding Eric bass drum mallets. And Eric's tossing them over to me, and I'm catching them, and I'm doing the toss and throwing them back. He's like, dude, you're ready. You're you're good. (laughs) (laughs) I remember we had the dress rehearsal, and we ended up going drinking before because we thought that's just a dress rehearsal. It doesn't really mean anything. And we, we drank a fair amount and we, we walked over in our uniforms and there's like 15 or 20,000 people in the stadium. They had sold tickets for the dress rehearsal. (laughs) (laughs) So there's a group of us going over there. You know, we had, we had a couple in us and, and um, I remember the lights, they had not got the lights down correctly and the lights went completely black when we were in that V tossing the sticks and all you could hear was, Oh, <laughs> just people getting hit by <laughs> lights come back up and there's sticks all over the ground. And I, I never dropped a pair of sticks. Never did. Well, that, that's, that's something to say for, for how, uh, how little prep we had. It, my, my other, my other fu- fun stick toss thing wasn't actually a stick toss. It was me being nervous about running out of sticks right so we have the drum and we have a a stick bag that fits two sticks well i managed on the side to figure out how to loosen up so i pounded in like four or five sticks in there i said there's no stinking way i'm gonna find myself out in the middle of the show and i have no sticks left because it was a legitimate risk um 
so I'm sitting there and I'm ready for the show and I'm trying to get mentally prepared, yada, yada. So um, Eric kind of comes up behind me and sees what I've done and sees how many sticks I have. And he kind of reaches around into my bag, grabs all of my sticks, gives me two, takes the other three, and hucks him <laughs> as far as he can back into the 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 entry area and we're about to go on i'm like you son of a gun <laughs> right <laughs> so the whole show i'm sweating like please don't drop a stick <laughs> and and i think that that was the, the the that that may have been that first show brendan when uh we were still doing the 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 drum to drum in a line we were still throwing the sticks back and forth and just as we started that the which never happened to us before because all the rehearsals were a day. The spotlights came right into our eyes from both directions. So as soon as you, your eyes looked over to, to, to catch the stick, this spotlight was at you. And there was a pile of wood in front of us when we were done. I walked out that, off that show and I used two sticks and I came out with no extras. So fun, fun, fun stuff. 2005. Wow, that's crazy. So, um, so let me ask you uh, this, and this came from a conversation I had with Scott Mitchell at the Bunker Hill Parade just two or three or four weeks ago, whenever that, that crazy parade was. And he recounted a story to me um, about Jim McConaugh obviously being a very, very strong snare drummer, and you, Michael Godin, because I can never say Michael, it has to now be Michael Godin, uh, another very strong drummer, but with different styles. And Scott said that even though you and Jim would kind of maybe want to go in different directions, Andrea Worth had this ability to get in between you. And I mean, literally stand in between you and bridge the gap and get you guys together is there truth to that and does that make sense to you i i think um if you listen to each player in mcv play individually it would probably be eye-opening just how different each of us sound individually. And I, I think all of us probably have this experience when you're playing in a line and you just get used to playing with others and someone says, hey, uh, Brian, play play that figure for me. And you play it and you go, wow, like I didn't know I sounded like that. I know I could play this. And and you kind of get a little, little thrown by wow, that's what I sound after listening to it 20 times in a row with, with the rest of the line. But um, certainly, uh, you know, Jim and I, but as well as others, have, um, you know, slightly different, you know, variations and maybe in, in, in some cases or from some viewpoints, significant variations in, in how we, we approach. Um, but that's, you know, I think it's a term that I used earlier, um, if you're going to play in a drum and bugle corps line, any marching percussion where you have multiple drummers and you're trying to play in, in synchronicity, if you're going to play in that line, that it's a key skill is to be able to learn how to listen and blend. 
Um, and and I, I've had experience. There's been a lot of different drummers um, in MCV that have filtered in over the years. And I've had experiences that, you know, we we find individuals that are fantastic at line playing and you know maybe a more derogatory term term but hiding uh in the line and you ask them to play a figure and they have you're like how are you possibly sounding good well play it with me and you you say well that sounded fine you play it alone wow that's that's not how it's supposed to be played but you're blending perfectly with me um so that's that's what you get when you play whether it's Jim McConaughey and Mike Godin or Jim McConaughey and Andrea or me and Paul Lasardi or, or any any one of the, uh, the, the the persons that each one of us play with. It, as long as you play with each other enough, um, you kind of develop that that sixth sense capability to know, kind of anticip- anticipate each other's uh, movements and where they're going to place notes, and you figure out how to... Um, use your style and your approach to blend with the person standing next to you and that's how you start getting that line to outwardly project that cleanliness now you know of course when, when you're in drum and bugle corps building off what we talked about earlier they they individually have the the time and the effort to line up their styles get their hands all right etc um, and we just don't have that luxury you really need to rely on people using their ears and being able to blend their sound and their approach with the person standing next to them so, so uh, certainly I, I, there's some truth to it I actually want, want to build off that a little bit um, I, I have kind of a thought that I want to um, to ask about um, I, I'm a big fan of DCI WGI um, you know and the the thing with those organizations is that there is an age out, right? Um, so at 21 years old, you can no longer do those. You can go on to DCA. Um, but I'm curious about your opinion if you think that uh, fife and drum and the traditional rudimental drumming has a has kind of a place in extending that path um, for drummers that have built up this incredible amount of skill um, with line playing and with just you know the focus that they've had. If fife and drum it can be, you know, a strong outlet for them to continue doing it throughout the, you know, for more of their life after age out. It, it absolutely, and it, and it's actually something that uh, we we discuss um, pretty regularly. Um, is is where do we get our our new people from? Because there's always going to be uh, attrition and and, and turnover. Um, and you know where we get our next player from in in the drums is a little different from where we get it in in the fife line. But certainly, um, I know in MCV we say probably our best feeder into the band is probably from the ranks of the WGIs and the and the DCIs because those types of players come in with those walk-in skill sets. And, and we talked earlier about, you know, technique um, and the breadth of music, but it's also being able to change change your filter and change your expectations. Because when you do WGI, DCI, you're looking for sterility of cleanliness. You're looking for everything to be perfect, the stick heights, the approach, um, every little note, tick, 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 just perfect. 
And that's really not a realistic expectation for an avocational group. It's just not. I, you know, you could, hey, let's let's slot down the total amount of music we do and let's just play three, three pieces and become a competition group. We could do that. But it would be a, just a, a, a drastically different approach. And, and I think, you know, we're at least MCV is uh, we prefer to, to have a, a more expansive um, in a repertoire of music uh, where we can explore a lot of different styles and time signatures. We're doing marches, we're doing, uh, you know, six eights and two fours and uh, all kinds of different uh, st styles and, and types of pieces and not just straight up hit you in the face uh, t type of drum core approach. So um, certainly um, build, building from DCI, WGI into fife and drum, I think, is a, is a good progression. And not just for MCV, for, for any one of the, um, especially the more accomplished, you know, fife and, fife and drums. I, and, you know, it'd probably be a little tougher for folks to, to change their filter over just to play, uh, you know, Yankee Doodle and, and a couple of the other standards for a whole parade. Um, I don't. I don't think their mindset and their training and what they've been uh, kind of geared to do would would they be able to make that big of a shift? Do, hey, do you I'll... think? Do you, do you think that that there? Sorry, Brian. No, uh, okay. That from their perspective, as far as them, you know, continuing to build as within their own musicianship, that that fife and drum and this approach has something to offer to kind of to to push them. You know, you talked about the fife and drum cores that they'd be joining, um, and, and that filter, but, um, like, do you see the skill set of fife and drum being beneficial to, to those players on an individual level as well? Absolutely. Because I, I think what done well, our style of music can be much more expressive, much more musical. And I don't mean to make that sound offensive, not that what they're doing in competitive, uh, you know, WGI, DCI isn't musical and expressive, um, but it's a, a different way of, of doing that. And it's doing it on a, a much more earthy set of instruments. Um, and it's just letting it, letting it breathe a lot more. Um, so personally, I, I'm way more musical than I ever was in, in DCI when I marched. Um, and that, that could speak to just me progressing as a musician, uh, but, but certainly transitioning over, that was part of the transition, is, is starting to learn that style. And, and open your, opening yourself up to different genres of, of, of music um, in different uh, time periods of, of music, it, it's very interesting, too. It's not just... Let's let's play a bunch of seven-stroke rolls and fast paradiddles really well. It's listening to the music and, and playing it well and trying to evoke emotions from the crowd. Awesome. Well, Mike, this has been really a, a great conversation. It was great to hear from you again and see you. I'm looking forward to hanging out with you at Deep River in a couple of weeks. Um, but, yeah, this has been great. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Looking forward Thank to seeing you, you Michael Godin. Thanks so much. Okay, gentlemen.
up in the morning slaving for bread, sir, so that every mouth can be fed. like to support the bottom of the glass go to patreon.com backslash bottom of the glass podcast to donate or click on the patreon link on our facebook and instagram pages and thank you program produced by michael blancaflor edited by brendan mason hosted by brendan mason dave loyal and brian watkinson podcast music was created by michael blancaflor logo was done by andrew Ruddle. 